The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. For all those men listening in, I have a special announcement that will give your balls goosebumps. So I don't know about you, but I get pretty sick and tired of changing my razors and trimmers to groom my body hair and my balls. So I wanted to introduce you to the new and improved Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0 Trimmer. Now, I know many guys listening into this podcast have probably seen me topless on social media and they'll know that I'm quite a hairy dude, whether that be due to my genetics being half Italian, half Lebanese, or because I maxed out my testosterone to 988 nanograms per deciliter. I don't really know, but the fact is that I have a lot of body hair and it's always been a struggle for me. So the Manscaped 3.0 features a cutting edge ceramic blade, which actually reduces the grooming accidents and has a pretty long battery life as well, lasting up to 90 minutes. It also features like a unique LED light as well so that you don't ever like miss a patch of hair. So I'm a huge fan of the Manscaped 3.0. So I have a special discount code that you guys can use. If you go to manscaped.com, you can get 20% off plus free shipping by using my code LUCAS10. That's L-U-C-A-S-10. Go to manscaped.com and you'll get 20% off plus free shipping by using my discount code LUCAS10. Hey everyone and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Right, welcome everyone to yet another episode of the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today, I'm joined in with Pedro coming in from the US. Um, he's a pretty close friend of mine. We've been exchanging messages over IG um, and bouncing ideas and discussing all things related to health and wellness. Um, and yeah, I'm lo- really looking forward to having a pretty um, in-depth discussion around, I guess, um, bacteria, biofilm, enteroviruses, toxins, hormesis, herbology, EMF, um, and all that good stuff. So, Pedro, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Luke. It's a pleasure, man. I'm looking forward to all the stuff we're going to discuss too. Wicked. So, maybe you want to start out by, I guess, giving my listeners a little bit of a... Um, summary into how you got into what you're doing today all right so i've always been into health and fitness and i started as a personal trainer and throughout the years i had a dog and a cat the cat was relatively healthy but my dog had lyme disease i didn't know what lyme disease was at the time and because of it he developed cardiac issues hypertrophic cardiomyopathy where his heart enlarged and the walls got really thin he got progressively worse as time went on and it wasn't until a few months before he passed away that I realized he was 
positive for Lyme, Lyme disease through IgM testing. So it was a very short run. I tried all I could. And unfortunately, I, I felt like I filled my dog. That left a strong enough impact on me to pursue something within the medical field and related fields to really understand the complexities of the human body, of life itself, so that something like that would never happen again. And that's how I got into the position I am now, studying biomedical medicine, uh, biomedical research, actually, and biotechnology as well. Yeah, interesting. So what about um, for those um, who are unfamiliar with what your IG profile name is, Thusi Dyes, Thucydides. Yeah, um, do you want to just give that a little explanation on to that, who that is? Thucydides was a Greek philosopher, and he had a very good quote that resonated strongly with me, which was a, a society without or a society with warriors that do not think and thinkers that cannot fight is an incomplete society. You need to be both a warrior and a scholar. You need to fight for what you believe, but also be open to exploring what you don't know. And that makes at least as close as possible to a philosophy of life that I aspire to have as well. So. Being well-versed in the literature of science is important, but also embodying that through my day-to-day actions and what I'm looking to do in life is as important as knowing the books and the research and the topics that we, for example, are interested in. Just spill things out on Instagram. We discuss what we uh, have researched in terms of, for example, biohacking, nootropics, and all that stuff. But we don't really embody it and pursue something greater because of it then I see it as a personless, uh, pursuit that doesn't have any worth, basically. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating. So what about um, in the whole realm of, I guess, like biohacking and things like that, um, is there a particular like interest of yours in that space currently or you just... Um, Actually, yeah. So a lot of people don't really know this because I don't speak about it, but I have some I really have some bad anatomy, man. man. And yeah, it comes up quite often quite when, when I'm doing schoolwork, for example, where I can't focus for more than two hours. So uh, obviously I've looked into many aspects of it. One of the most common sides of my um, pursuits with nootropics is understanding how we can management, manage the ADD and the symptoms that come with that. Something that really interested me since the beginning that I've talked to you about was adrafinil, modafinil, and that's something that's helped me out tremendously. Um, certain peptides like Nupep, for example, is really, really useful. So those are areas of, of nootropics that I'm really interested in. Although I have to say, I don't devote as much time to understanding how nootropics work, their biochemistry, as for example, with what you're doing. For example, I never knew that you can mimic the ketogenic diet and the GABA-induced brain effects without being on ketosis. This is something completely new to me that I've seen you post about. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, yeah. um, I'm similar to you in that regard. I just like to um, not only research, but then also experiment as well. Cause you know, you can read one thing on a particular paper, but then when you try it and personally experience it, then you'll never truly know like how that compound is yeah, going to affect different. you. Like we all have that, you know, unique um, neurochemistry and um, unique makeup that I think, a lot of people need to respect and um, right, right. and build that identity. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, what about we'll sort of segment into um, a little bit on, I guess, bacteria and biofilm for my listeners because I'm sure many of them are unfamiliar with what they are and things like that. So, do you want to talk a little bit about that? So, the best way I could simplify this is 
a biofilm is an aggregate of bacteria, parasites, fungi, viruses. It all depends on certain biofilms, the location of where it's growing. You could think of it as basically the pond scum that just sits up right, up by, right by where, where the pond hits the, the soil and it's really thick. The same biofilm formation occurs in our intestines, occurs in catheters that are given to patients. It occurs pretty much everywhere. Biofilm is actually the natural state of microbes. They want to stay in a group together as if they're all hanging out inside of a bar. And when we have biofilms, the nucleic components, the DNA, the RNA, they get exchanged between the microbes. It doesn't matter if it's a parasite, a, a gram-positive, gram-negative bacteria, they all become exchanged to some extent. Some are either inhibited, some are enhanced, are enhanced depends depends on, on once again, the biofilm colonies. But many people don't realize that when we have biofilms in our intestines and we have symptoms of it coming up, for example, as brain fogs, brain fog or some kind of other condition neurologically, it can be addressed by disrupting the biofilm and then killing the pathogens with antimicrobials. antimicrobials. That's the best That's way the best I can way. explain what a biofilm is, but it goes a lot deeper into it. And for example, the sense that biofilms are actually very interesting in that they align with Earth's magnetic field. They have biomagnetic or ferromagnetic is the right word components that allow them to align with the magnetic flux of Earth. By simply altering the magnetic flux, you can disrupt an entire biofilm. That is something that's so fascinating to me. And so this, um, like disrupting that magnetic flux, is that sort of linked into, I guess, like um, EMFs in any way or? Yeah, so this is a, one reason why EMFs make mold so difficult to deal with, but also exacerbate their mycotoxin release. So mycotoxins are the weapons that mold have to disrupt and kill any other pathogens. This is why the antibiotic penicillin works pretty well because it uses mycotoxins to kill the bacteria. When we have EMFs, it seems as though the EMFs trigger some kind of genetic response from the pathogens, from the mold that cause them to release excess mycotoxins. When that happens, we usually blame EMF, but it's a it's possible possible and a probably a very strong possibility that it's not that the EMF is threatening the, the mold into producing more toxins, more so it's orienting its genetic components into producing more toxins. It's an epigenetic effect, basically. And I think that happens with every organism on this planet because every organism is affected by the magnetic fields of Earth. And when I say magnetic flux, it just means the surface area from which the magnetic field comes out. So if you look at, for example, where you're located in Australia, if you just outline your city and you explain the magnetic field that comes out of it, that's a flux. Right. Interesting. So I guess maybe um, for a lot of people that either um, are suffering from some sort of chronic disease and things like that, how does, I guess, like um, mold exposure influence somebody's like wellness and vitality? Right. So mold by itself, every single mold or mycose species is in some aspect pathogenic because they all elicit effects in our body. Some of them, like the stachybotrys, which is the water building mold that grows from water damage, those can be very, very destructive to our nervous system, to our brain. We literally induce apoptosis in cells by caspase enzymes in the mitochondria. So they kill the mitochondria, so the mitochondria then release enzymes that kill our cells. So just by the nature of mold itself, it can disrupt pretty much all bacterial life. 
including the mitochondria. By doing this, it, it disrupts our functions neurologically, especially because our brain is so mitochondrial dense. It can cause cardiac issues like POTS because our hearts are also very mitochondrial dense. It can cause problems with our guts and increases histamine release because it exacerbates our immune response. So I think different molds have different responses based on bioindividuality, but also we can probably rule a certain number of mold in specific conditions. For example, aflatoxins causing um, liver cancer, and that's pretty well known and established in the literature too. So I guess then, um, do you think it's possible that, you know, we can build up a strong enough immune system and sort of vitality to then sort of offset the damaging effects of mold? Or do you think that like it's probably more beneficial that we remove the source? Because obviously it's a bit difficult for some people after exposure. Are there things that they can yeah. do? I think if we were to have built our immune system to respond to mold, it would have been done long before because we were encompassed by all these different fungi species and we're still affected by them in modern times. Something that's interesting to me that I realized with mold patients and clients that I've worked with and people that I've known that are affected by mold is they usually have the genetic susceptibilities, but it isn't turned on until they come into exposure with some kind of mold damage from, from buildings. Um, so I don't think the immune response is something we want to focus on as much as getting away from the sources and seeing if we can address the genetic response that we get from mold by addressing something else like our gut microbiome. Because we know that the, the same biofilm community can be good for us because they exchange genetic components with us. And some of their genetic components are actually resistant to some of the mycotoxins like the, the bacteria Klebsiella, I'm sure you've heard of it, right? Yeah. It's yeah, resistant yeah. to a lot of the mold toxins. So when people get exposed to mold, what happens is Klebsiella overgrows in their intestines and then autoimmune conditions develop. Really, it's just that Klebsiella is the lone bacteria now that is able to overgrow because it can be defend, defended against the mold toxins. So this, um, this Klebsiella bacteria, I don't know if you've heard about it, in the context of um, alkalosing spondylitis, Mm -hmm. um, that's those sort of conditions, but what else is that sort of linked to? Well, there's a lot of autoimmune conditions that can arise from Klebsiella, but I don't think I can say that it is the lone pathogen that causes multiple autoimmune conditions. I think that it affects certain people and depending on, once again, their bioindividuality, it may manifest as something in specific, whether it's uh, pulmonary conditions or something more systemic like lupus. Okay. So what about, um, yeah, because I know a lot of my listeners are either suffering from like an autoimmune condition. Um, so in terms of like what's actually happening in the body in under like in those autoimmune states, like do you want to explain a little bit about what autoimmune disease actually is? So in my opinion, and this is my opinion alone, I would love to say that autoimmune conditions are just your immune cells attacking your own body. But I do not believe that's the case. If this was the case, when we had such a strong, thriving immune system, years before these were conditions that were being recorded in history, it would have happened before more often, in my opinion. I think that autoimmune conditions are by far two things happening. One, metabolic dysregulation, where you have more metabolic waste from our cells being built up within a certain localized area, and that can develop as something like eczema, for example. When we have too much retinoic acid, it literally burns pores in our skin that become eczema. 
or it could be something like a stealth pathogen, which I have to dedicate most of this information to my friend of mine, Dr. Jess, where pathogens themselves become implicated in the autoimmune disease, but they can't be diagnosed. We're looking for serological tests when they are more in the lymphatic system. Usually they will stay dormant just enough that the immune system doesn't produce antibodies that can be detected through testing. When that's the case, then it becomes very difficult to diagnose somebody with a proper reason for why an autoimmune condition develops. One example of this that's really good is in multiple sclerosis, where retrovirus transponsins elements, basically the, the compounds in our own cells that produce viruses, our own retroviruses become activated. And it's very difficult to diagnose this, but it can be tested with some aspects um, in specific testing where we see that multiple sclerotic patients have these active retroviruses and others that do not have the multiple sclerosis don't have them as well. It's, it's like a clear indication that there is a pathogen in response to the disease, but we can't say if that is the reason why the disease developed in the first place. There's connections, but no causation that we can say for sure. Right. Um, yeah, interesting. So what about, you, you obviously mentioned a little bit on um, uh, like the lymphatic system, and I know that we've uh, had a bit of a discussion about like some specific herbs and things like that to enhance and improve that lymphatic system but do you want a little do you want to discuss a little bit about the lymphatic system itself yeah so to simplify the lymphatic system it is basically the one system of our body that does not have a pump to regulate its motion we wouldn't for it to move the fluids we need to move ourselves and it is a sewer system of our body if we, if we never took never care took of the sewer system we had a we faulty had a sewer system in our house, in our house. The toilets would overflow back up and then we have pretty much shit all over our bathroom and then sooner or later it's going to wind up to really unhygienic conditions that cause um, proliferation of bacteria that can cause disease so the same sort of thinking can be applied within our bodies by properly helping our lymphatic system our own sewer system we don't have those metabolic waste clogging up clogging us up the endotoxemia clogging us up the pathogens and their own byproducts clogging us up what will happen is all of it gets flushed out in a perfect world through our emunculary organs, the kidneys being flushed out through urine, the intestines being pooped out, and the skin is expelling it out, and also our lungs, which also expel it out in a sense. And what we would have is a perfectly clean lymphatic system. Being that the lymph nodes themselves are where most of the maturation of immune cells occur, if we don't have proper lymphatic flow and, and fluid viscosity is really thick, then pressure increases. If pressure increases, we're not going to have the cells that need to be matured mature. And this is the condition that arises in a lot of metabolic um, conditions or syndromes, such as obesity and diabetes, where these people don't have a robust enough immune response to certain diseases and they become immune compromised. This can be traced directly back to improper flow of fluids within the lymphatic system yeah interesting so in terms of a um like a bit of a a protocol to i guess support the lymphatic system i know that um a lot of people are engaging or undergoing the carnivore diet um mm -hmm. and so if we if we look at that diet we obviously can see that it's lacking you know the polyphenols and a lot of the things that we find in herbs that actually stimulate the lymphatic system so it sort of makes me wonder do those on a carnivore diet actually have compromised lymphatic systems like what are your thoughts there 
So I, I do know that as we break down a lot of the fat, fatty foods that we eat and focusing mainly on a carnivore diet, it's a lot of fatty foods, a lot of fatty red meat. We package them into my seals to be taken up by the lymphatic system. That's where fat goes, whereas protein, protein and glucose go through our, our circulatory, circulatory system. What's interesting about these fat molecules are that they are polarized, so they re repel each other. And this is also found in our circulatory system. Our cells repel each other because if they didn't, they would coagulate and then we produce clots. This is what happens with inflammation. So a high fat meal by itself may actually be effective at improving lymphatic flow because you have this polarization of molecule pushing each other away. So everything moves steadily through the fluid, which is our, our lymphatic ducts and the fluid just fine. It may be that as you do just a carnivore diet by itself, you're actually improving the flow of your lymphatic ducts based on polarization of fatty acids, fatty acid molecules. But at the same time, if you don't have enough water to help repel the fatty acid molecules, which can develop with a lack of electrolytes that's present in the mitochondrial diet, I mean, the carnivore diet, you don't have enough potassium coming in, you don't have enough sodium at times, depending on how much salt you have. So the water retention is very low. And in that case, the lymphatic system can become, um, for lack of a better word, clumped up. And from there, you're gonna have problems with lymph flow throughout the system. That could be a reason why, for example, uh, lipoproteins that, that deliver to the specific areas are not getting to where they need to go, and then atherosclerosis forms or plaque formation, basically. Right. So, what about? Let's have a little chat about the implications of a carnivore diet on the microbiome. I know Paul Saladino has spoken very briefly on it, but I'd love to get your thoughts on like how that sort of diet is going to impact the microbiome. I, I definitely think when we eat certain foods, we affect which microbes become the dominant ones. So if we eat specifically a lot of sugar, we know that yeast tends to overgrow. And we don't know if sure that food is bad. It's such a complex topic. I know, you know Ray Pete, he always recommends eating high sugar foods, fructose and everything. And to some extent, he has some really good evidence behind it. But at the same time, it's clear that some people get affected by the, the fungus from eating too much sugar. So they need to cut it out of their life. And that's usually what causes people to go into the elimination diet, like a carnivore diet. And the fungus or the microbes that cause a disease or the condition that they're feeling, whether it's bloating or something as serious as Crohn's, they don't have the fuel source, which is the fermentative vegetables, the FODMAP food, basically, to produce their metabolites, and they die off. The thing is, I don't think they fully die off in the long run unless you do it for an extended period of time, like years. So by changing the microbiome in the short term, you get relief. But then when you reintroduce foods, you have the symptoms flare up again. However, for somebody like Paul Saladino, who's been doing it for years, this may not be the case. His microbiome may have switched completely into the putrefactive bacteria that digest proteins well, and then that break down fatty acids well. And in that case, it may benefit him because he has lowered lipid peroxidation in his gut, so his gut is less inflamed, and he also doesn't have the microbes that cause the inflammatory cascade. It's a very complex issue in that most people with, with um, mutations like MTHFR will do really well on the carnivore diet, but then people that have APOE mutations will do horrible. In fact, they will, it'll raise their risk for heart disease substantially. It's very complex. I can't say that it's bad or good, but it does have short-term and long-term effects on the microbiome.
it, it, it's good or bad depends once again on the person. Yeah, that's well said. So what about um, your personal experience with the, uh, I know you personally experimented with it, um, but now you're sort of leaning slightly away from it. So do you want to share your experience? So I, I did decide to go on a carnivore diet twice. So the first time I did it for a few days, I did not feel good. I had really sweaty hands. And what it seemed like to me was a sign of hyperthyroidism, which is something I struggled with before, actually. Wow. But the second time around, I did it for a period of about three weeks. I have to say the first two days, there was an obvious adjustment period. Your body almost feels as if it's lacking energy, despite you consuming a large amount of calories coming from fats, which... It's, it makes sense because one, fats are slower to oxidize through beta oxidation than glucose, but also because your body is switching substrate fuels over the long run. After about a week, I felt a sense of calm, which can be attributed to like what you said, low serotonin and higher GABA, um, GABA neurotransmitter activity, which is the case also with ketosis. And then at about week, two and a half to three weeks, I started craving carbohydrates really bad again. And I started to ask myself, why is this? I was getting all of the necessary minerals, all of the nutrients I needed, but I still wanted carbohydrates. When I first reintroduced them, I had obvious gut dysbiosis, bloating, and it affected me because I did it for only a period of three weeks. But had I done it more in terms of duration, maybe I wouldn't have had these effects. However, after I introduced carbs again, there were clear distinctions in, for example, my executive function. When I was in a carnivore diet, I couldn't focus for a long period of time on learning things. Um, whereas when I consume a large amount of glucose and carbs, that allows me to learn more effectively in a short amount of time. But the downside of that is I also don't feel more clarity, more aware of my day when I'm eating glucose at high, high enough amounts. But when I was on a carnivore diet, I felt this immense clarity. Everything just seemed extremely HD for lack of better um, explanation, basically. That's one thing I really enjoyed about the carnivore diet. But at the same time, I just don't think it's something that for me would be a long-term solution for, for things that I'm dealing with, for example. Hmm. What about the, what about the, uh, the impact on your like, physical training and things like that? Yeah, so it didn't reduce my strength. It didn't reduce my markers of activity. It actually enhanced them. And it makes sense because obviously when you use the beta oxidation, you produce about five times more ATP per molecule of fat than you do if you were using glucose. So energy expenditure was obviously higher. The lack of inflammation was present as well because the beta oxidation actually produces um, not free radical O2, but just normal oxygen that's higher in stability to help reduce inflammation. So when you have too much CO2, you produce more lactic acid and inflammation rises. There was a clear distinction with that, but it also wasn't something that I felt my best with. I didn't feel the drive to work out. I think that the neurotransmitter activity that was occurring on the diet had actually made me more docile, very relaxed, like I didn't want to work out. It's interesting. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So um, we're going to sort of segue into a little bit on, um, I guess, herbology because I know that's an area of interest for you uh, and, and same for me as well. Like I love to research and dive deep on herbs and understand them from a, a very like biochemistry point of view and things like that. Um, so do you want to sort of like share your sort of areas of interest around herbology? Yeah, so I, I definitely I think... Def 
What we know about herbs and their mechanisms and how effective they can be for certain conditions is so, so large. We're just not looking in the right places. A lot of scientific literature is present to show these compounds are exceptional aids to a lot of conditions. Um, a good example of this, actually, not just a herb itself, but chemotherapy, which is used for cancer, is derived from alkaloids of plants. I mean, that's one of the most lucrative businesses for cancer. And people often forget that it's from plants that these compounds come from that are anti-carcinogenic. So it's the same with eating the foods. It's just that we don't have the higher concentration of alkaloids, phyto compounds, phenolic compounds, um, flavonoids that induce the same effect in the high concentrated single chemical compounds in chemotherapy, for example. I think we're, we're literally sitting under a goldmine of information that's just not being expressed and shown to people in day-to-day life. And I, I know, for example, dealing with neurochemistry, just by taking in certain herbs, you can improve your brain chemistry so much. You can reduce tau aggregates, improve your, your uh, resistance to getting Alzheimer's disease in the future. It's a lot of information that's just sitting there. Mm, absolutely. absolutely. What about, um, uh, I know that we're both sort of bounced ideas around like using adaptogens so i'm curious to know like your experience with um a lot of the popular and famous uh, adaptogenic herbs so i i can tell you that the reason why i like adaptogens is mainly because i know i'm prone to being easily stressed out especially when i have so much going on at once with school for example so i would go for something as simple as ashwagandha but then I know, for example, for other people that are prone to being high in uh, serotonin, for example, they do worse with ashwagandha, and it makes them have even more symptoms of anxiety and uh, depression. So it really does differ between person to person, but adaptogens are such a useful tool for people that get really stressed out easily, no, like, easily like, like I have a low stress tolerance, tolerance that have um, very little amount of sleep. They help improve the energy production just enough to get you through the day. And also for mental acuity, when, when I take adaptogens like gluteal rosea, I have an obvious improvement in my mental acuity. Mm. And you also had experience with uh, shilajit as well. Yeah. Yeah. And shilajit to me is more of a food. It's just a food we consume in small amounts. And we consider a supplement because of the packaging, maybe the pills or the resin itself. But it is a food. It's biomass. It's minerals. It's the same thing we would get in a plant, just in a very condensed fashion. And basically, I guess you can say it's just preserved for a longer period of time. And in this case, fifty thousand, hundred thousand years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I um when I very when I first started using shilajit, I remember actually it was it was it was it was like a Monday um, heading to uni, and I remember like when I first had the resin. I actually experienced like a very strong vibrational, yeah. like a particular vibrational rush. I was like a full body, like vibration. It was really like powerful. And I remember walking to how much did you take by any chance? Do you remember? I had like a pea size, like a yeah. 20 milligrams, probably yeah. tiny amount. Um, and yeah, I remember experiencing like getting that, that vibrational rush and um, feeling really like calm and focused and grounded. Um, when I got to uni, um, I haven't been able to replicate that effect. I know it's like probably initial like adjustment period where it's probably like, I don't know, detoxifying or changing the vibrations, things like that. Um, I, I do think that 
Helix G has only made me feel that way when I haven't taken it for a long period of time and then I restart again, or when I know that I don't get enough rest, for example. It just gives me that little edge and I can feel that. The vibrations that you may be feeling internally here, you know, I don't want to listen to this. As much as the scientific mind that I have, I always want to be encompassing all the spiritual aspects of things. Sheila G is one that, at least in the Ayurvedic tradition, is used to improve the solar plexus chakra. And that has to do with going out into the world, inducing effects, seeing what you want to create, giving content away, um, helping people. So it, it does have, in, in some instance, a spiritual effect on our psyche and our emotions and the actions we take. That's why the name Destroyer of Weakness, Conqueror of Mountains is what is coined Sheila G. It has that, that, that interesting factor of, of not only, not only physically improving your, your well-being, but also mentally. Mm. Yeah. And it's a, it's a real shame that like, um, a lot of the scientific studies, like that's going to be impossible to measure. Like it's, it's virtually impossible to measure that aspect that we're talking about now. Emotional content of it. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's difficult. I know it's like being studied heavily in the context of like um, enhancing ATP and mitochondrial efficiency, things like that. But um, you know, there are scientists actually, I do not remember what is the technology that they used. I only saw this one time. There are scientists that are using measuring devices that they can actually plot on a graph and see in terms of, for example, thermal frequencies and the um, the apps that they use. I don't know what the device is, but they put electrodes on a yogi that's doing meditation to measure different points of chakras. For example, the throat chakra, the eye chakra, and they see the thermal frequency of the, the emission that they get from the electrode when they say they're going to activate a specific chakra. And what happens is that the, say the electrode is located in your third eye, the thermal frequency of it rises and they can actually plot this on a graph over a period of time. And it's amazing by just by willpower alone, they can change the, the reading response from the electrode into the graph, which at least to me tells me there's some sort of measurement there. It's just that we don't have the right measure of association to what a chakra is. What is that, that, Energy is electromagnetism. Is it thermal? We don't know. It's tough to say, but it's there. But it's there. That's really cool. That's actually, yeah, that's cool. Um, so what about, uh, I guess, we'll sort of segue a little bit into light exposure because we haven't really had a chance to talk about light. Um, so do you want to like, yeah, is there an area within that space that you'd love to research? Man, Man I think I light think is the space behind it all. So, let me start by saying with chemistry, we, like, we love to look at the compounds and how they, how they have specific effects, how NUPEP increases neurogenesis or whatever the compound may be. But all of it is underlied by electrical action. Every compound has an electrical component to it and at the atomic level that elicits the effects we're looking for. And every single time we can confirm that effect. For example, you know that if you take a statin, it's going to reduce cholesterol. Why is that? Why can we trust that this drug will always reduce cholesterol? Why do we do randomized controlled trials to measure this every single time? The fact that it all comes down to electrostatic interactions between molecules, it's amazing to me. What underlies electrostatics is electromagnetism and light is carried through an electromagnetic wave. 
every day we wake up and we don't say thanks to that thing that up in the sky, sky that, sun that sun that produces the electromagnetic waves for us every single day that works in a chronological fashion and an optical fashion fashion the chronogenetic response that we get from a sun meaning the timing circadian cycles is amazing the optogenetic response is also something we don't take for uh, for the value that it provides for example researchers at mit biomedical engineers were looking at how they can measure epigenetic responses so they found that when they induce specific light waves of higher frequencies which means that the wavelength is shorter so it's very 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 fast blue light for example light, for example they could induce histone deacetylation and gene expression way easier just by light better than any drug that they've used before and when they use lower frequency waves like radio waves it didn't have the same effect that's one example the other example is for example the expressions of genes can be inhibited by light as well it's called tumor tumor like activator effectors t-a-l-e and i'll send it over to you right after but they they are responding to light patterns as well crypto um man these names are always always me, but but it's a specific protein that is responding to light that allows these these transcription activators to either allow the gene to be expressed or not certain light can inhibit this and then the genes don't get expressed and then certain light actually enhance this so the genes get expressed this one area of research is actually, actually very well explored in plants where they see that if you don't have the specific gene that allows blue light to help the plant grow the plant will have deformities it will be very uh, mutated the mutations are very apparent in a plant the same thing can happen in the human beings we don't get life for a certain period of time we don't have the specific genes that are expressing in a chronological fashion fashion and in an optical fashion that will uh, will sooner or later express itself as a, as either disease or some manifestation of disease i hope i was able to break that down as simply as possible but what i'm trying to say even simpler is that light and circadian cycles dictate everything about our cells and our genetics basically with that with that blue light you mentioned if the plants lacked that blue light yes yeah, so i'm trying to remember what what it was called crypto something something Cryptochrome. So bacteria, they're chromophores. They respond to light. Plants use light for photosynthesis. So cryptochrome proteins are what absorb the light from the UV and allow the expression of certain genes. For example, the blue light from the sun allows the plants to grow a specific way. And if you don't have that blue light, the plants are deformed, they're, they're mutated. We have those cryptochrome proteins in our own body. And the response we get from light allows our genes to express by the transcription-like activator effectors. And this all mediated by light. So if you don't get enough light, those genes are not expressed or they are expressed in ways that shouldn't happen. That's underlying all of the, the basic chemistries that happen in our body we take for granted because of light. The area of research for this is optogenetics. Optogenetics, cool. We'll be linking those in the show notes for, yeah. for those listening. Yeah. Um, it's it's a definitely a fascinating area. There was one thing you mentioned about the um, histone D HDAC. And, yeah. yeah, and you said that um, certain lights can actually activate that process and that sort. Of, yeah. So usually it's higher frequency light. With higher frequency, you have higher energy. So when you, for example, turn on infrared light, 
to some some extent you can see some of it and that's actually low um sorry that's actually high frequency so you feel the amber light coming from it that's heat that's because the kinetic energy of the light produces the heat whereas lower frequency you don't feel as much and that can be something like radio frequency where the wavelength is so long that it just penetrates everything but we don't feel the effects from it um so these higher frequency energy carrying lights have this effect on the responses that we have in our cells and our genes this is partly due to ionization obviously when you ionize something you're going to get an increase in kinetic energy and that's why that can happen so then what about um artificial blue light as you can already imagine non-native emf electromagnetic frequencies that even though they may not be ionizing they're still carrying high energy will have some effect on those proteins. One interesting thing that can happen is you reduce the black body radiation, basically how much radiation you yourself expose into the day, into your world. Everybody to some extent exposes radiation. The more radiation you can absorb and then expose means you have a higher energy stand, like a, a baseline. We see that with people that are sick, their radiation exposure skyrockets and that's why you can use a thermal gun for example to see how much their body temperature changes when people are overweight we see a lack of radiation exposure and that's a example of low temperature which is what we call hypothyroidism an effective hypothyroidism is we get a lower temperature that can be the same it can be translated to physics as a lack of kinetic energy where you're lacking electrons you're not lack you're lacking the main substrate in the mitochondrial electron transport chain for everything to operate. So non-native EMF as blue light can have a substantial effect on all of our physiology just by this, just by this interaction, interaction of light, light, chemistry, and electro, like, electrodynamics alone. Mm, it's crazy. It just um, really emphasizes the importance of, uh, I can show you, you filter out that blue light, that artificial right. light blocking glass. The problem is it's not just the glasses that we need to be focusing on, our skins, Exactly. We have histidine. Histidine captures the light and it transforms it into whatever biochemical response we need, whether it raises histamine, for example, at, with the carboxylation. And then we have a histamine response that is not suited or we don't want. And our immune system is overactive. And then we have, for example, problems with, problems with um, our, our gut because we have too much histamine. We don't, we don't relate it to non-native EMF related to the foods that we're eating. When in reality, we're, it's just because we're being bathed in this high-frequency energy environment. Mm. So what about, um, I mean, I personally have experimented with like sun gazing. Um, I mean, I, I tried it probably about a year ago. Um, and my initial response from like undergoing sun gazing was I noticed a particular reduction in appetite. Like it was, it was, it was actually very noticeable. Like I could easily function with less food. I also felt like a bit more um, energized or there was again, a similar vibration to the Shilajit. Um, so what's, um, what's your experience been like with like sun gazing? Same thing. Well, you're describing exactly the same thing I've experienced. And what I always experience when I don't get enough sunlight and then I finally expose myself. I believe that the reason why, let's start first with the appetite reduction. Sunlight regulates leptin. Leptin regulates our appetite. And therefore, just by exposing yourself to more sunlight, your appetite diminishes. Also, by regulating leptin, you improve your insulin response. 
thereby increasing insulin sensitivity, you improve all metabolic markers. The second, the improved well-being, whether it is through awareness or clarity, um, being able to socialize with people, I think that has a lot to do with the fact that our eyes, when we receive sunlight, transmit through specific parts of our brain to produce more dopamine. And then with that rush of dopamine, plus the endorphins produced by the sun, we have an exponential improvement in well-being and at least your feelings of well-being. Mm. Yeah. And... um what about like, I guess the influence that's going to have on the, how somebody sleeps that night. Cause then obviously it's going to be synchronizing that melatonin secretion, things like that. We know that actually melatonin, I don't know, at least um, to some extent, it may be that most people think melatonin is made at night and it's made to help us sleep. The reality is most of your melatonin is made as soon as you wake up with the sun and when the sun hits your eye. So this molecule is made from tryptophan, which is an amino acid that captures light. The light allows it to go, it's under, undergo its chemical reactions to become melatonin. And it happens the moment we expose ourselves to sunlight. When we don't expose ourselves to sunlight and we expose ourselves to non-ADM meth, what winds up happening is we have a lower melatonin secretion. And from there, obviously, because melatonin is so useful for, for so many different conditions, I mean, it's being studied as a therapeutic agent for cancer just by itself we have a lot of concerns as downstream mechanisms whether it's it's appetite increases or sleep problems or obesity over the long run so the main thing i can i can consolidate this to is you need to get sunlight to produce melatonin yeah so um the other day i spoke about uh zeolite as a potential means to I guess, enhanced detoxification. Um, so I'm curious to know your stance on zeolite and I guess maybe this is historical use as well. I don't really know much about the historical use of zeolite. I do know that just as zeolite has been used by uh, ancient tribes and specific locations in the world where these, these uh, cultures have used them for detoxification in their own regard, so have they done the same for bentonite clay where the same thing for detoxification purposes or skin health, all of that. I think that these, these binders, the main reason that they work is that they have a structure that allows positively charged, for example, molecules such as heavy metals to be bound and strongly bound through covalent bonding into the structure and then excreted out the body. So it works really well for things like heavy metals, and that's why zeolite is used in this case. I definitely think, though, that it's not a perfect binder binder because because where it lacks in some areas, some other binders can make up for it, like apple pectin, citrus pectin, and activated charcoal. With, for example, EMTs, when somebody has a cocaine overdose, the first thing that they'll give them, if there's nothing else that they can do, is activated charcoal. And it pulls the the cocaine right out so that they're not experiencing a a toxicity that can kill them. Right. So um, one thing that you reminded me of uh, was actually a longevity supplement that I know a lot of people have experimented with. Um, and that is C60. Um, carbon 60. Full, full minster, full, I forgot the guy's name. Buckminster Fuller's carbon 60 molecule. Yeah. yeah what about yeah. it? Well, um, I'm seeing more and more rat studies. You know, there was one famous rat study where it literally extended lifespan. Um, 90% or so, right? Ridiculous. Yeah. And, and now I'm, I'm seeing more and more research. So that's, 
seems like it's definitely an up and coming um, supplement, I guess, for just ramping up the body's antioxidant uh, defenses. But um, have you personally experimented with it at all? I have it in the sense of Shilajit because I know that Shilajit contains a substantial, substantial amount of it. I don't think that just supplementing C60 by itself is a smart idea because the, we know that carbon is what we're mainly composed of. We are carbon-based beings. Carbon itself interacts in interesting ways, especially with other molecules. It's never something that is intuitive. It's usually counterintuitive how it operates. I think most of C60's effect, yes, it has incredible antioxidant properties, but it may be in relation to other um, compounds and nutrients, elements that have synergistic effects in reducing inflammation, improving longevity over the long term. What's interesting about the structure of carbon-60 is how perfect in terms of symmetry, point symmetry, that it basically is one of the most stable structures that you can find in biology. Where you have stability in biology, you have good function. When a cell loses the stability through its membrane, it loses its function. And every level, as Ray Peak, for example, says, you, where you have good stability, you have, have good energetic um, components of whether it's physiology, biochemistry, everything. Stability underlies all of biology. Which would make Which sense why he really um, pushes for the anti-puffer diet, obviously. Oxidation and all that stuff. I think Ray Peak is not so much anti-puffer as he is reducing your intake because you're already accumulating so much over a long period of time. Yeah. Um, did you ever, did you ever undertake like the anti-puffer diet at all? Like, did you try and eliminate them as much as you could or? No, I'm, honestly, I, I'm not so worried about the puffers. I think what matters more is the, for example, imp- increasing vitamin E levels is an obvious we don't have enough of that switching the seed oils, even if it's olive oil, olive oil is rich in PUFAs. Every food to some extent has polyunsaturated fatty acids. Just what is the ratio of it compared to mono to saturated fatty acids? I think also the gut health plays a major role in this because if we have certain um, microbes that increase lipid peroxidation, it doesn't matter if it's polyunsaturated or saturated. At some point it will peroxidize and then cause damage to our intestinal line. No, I don't worry so much about it as much as where is it coming from? What is the source? If it's soy, soy um, PUFAs, I definitely don't want that. If it's olive oil PUFA, I'm not as worried. Yeah. And um, he also sort of explores uh, a little bit about iron being very detrimental to health. But in like, I'm just going to put my personal experience out there. I was undergoing so many strategies to lower my iron. Um, you know, I was donating blood yeah. every 12 weeks, taking curcumin high dose, taking vitamin B1 and other compounds that were actually lowering my iron. I eventually reached the point where I was basically anemic. Anemic, um, right. <laughs> yeah. So, but then what really brought me back was not like, not just eating red meat. I was I actually had to supplement iron. Um, and personally, that was like the best thing I ever did because then my energy just came back like, like threefold. But I guess... He's definitely right in the sense that it is a very um, reactive metal in the body. I think it's second to mercury, potentially. Yeah. yeah. Um, under certain certain circumstances, it can be very beneficial, like iron supplementation. But um, I can see where he's coming from in the fact that, like you know, in particular, men they they can't 
they can't excrete the iron, so it accumulates and builds up in tissues. But yeah, like hemochromatosis or something. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. The fact that their menstrual cycles have an advantage is that obviously you lose blood, you lose iron. I also think that if iron was such a major concern, we would not have been where we are now because most of our foods were high in iron before the agricultural revolution, hundreds of thousands of years of this anthropological period where we're consuming high iron foods. What came with the high iron foods was the other ratios of minerals that are counter or the antagonists of iron, copper, and in some instances, molybdenum, calcium, all of these have different interactions that we don't necessarily understand for at least all of them and how they interact with each other in one instance, but they're still present in the right ratios in food that's properly grown. I think if nature provides them in a specific ratio, it's for a reason. And it has to be a reason based on geography too, because certain foods that are found in the Arctic will not be in the tropics and vice versa. There's reasons for that. And then certain foods there are higher in nutrients that might be absent in the other geographies. So focusing on one mineral, I don't think is the right, the right uh, approach. But I do think because of the way we live now, we're hyper evolution, evolutionary beings where every single year is another breakthrough in some kind of scientific perspective. We're not yet accustomed biologically to deal with all of this. And so fortification of iron in our cereals, that's not the right thing to do. Um, Consuming more red meat and not consuming foods high in copper like certain vegetables, that's not the right thing to do, Mm. vice versa. So I think iron is, once again, by reducing it to that one component without exploring all of the possibilities of why it got to the the state that it's in, I don't think it's the right way to go about addressing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. What about, we didn't really get a chance get a to explore a little bit of toxins, um, atrazine, atrazine, and other hidden toxins, things yeah. like that. So I know you, you're pretty passionate in that realm. So do you want to talk a little bit about how they can really impact our biochemistry? Yeah. So a researcher out of California, I heard Tyrone Hayes, that's his name. He studied atrazine in frogs and he, he found that its endocrine disruptor capabilities were very, very high. Very, very high. And, and because of this, it caused the frogs to basically become emasculated and become feminine to the point that they grew what it seemed like to be feminine organs. The amount that he used is obviously something that a human being would not get because obviously the experiment was on an animal. But we know that even at the lowest parts per billion, these compounds have some kind of effect, whether it's a nanogram range, microgram, doesn't matter. They will always listen to effect. I think in combination with glyphosate, in combination with um, other pharmaceuticals that are in our water supply, in combination with the toxins that are in our, inside of our food system, we cannot focus on that one toxin in parts per billion. We have to encompass the entire system because we don't know if these toxins are synergistic. We haven't studied the synergistic toxicology of all of these compounds all at once. If one of them can elicit an endocrine disruptor effect, what happens with a thousand of them? And when we have a thousand of them in a parts per billion range, all of a sudden it shifts to parts per million range. And we do that over and over day after day after day. Our system is not yet ready to deal with the substantial amount of different toxins that have to undergo some kind of detoxification in our liver, whether it's sulfuration, glucuronidation, methylation, doesn't matter. Every one of them has a different pathway. One pathway is... is um, 
compromise in the liver, you're going to have about a 17% reduction in overall detoxification capability. Over time, what will happen? If you intake more atrazine than, than you can excrete, it'll start becoming um, sequestered in fat tissue. And then it's going to elicit endocrine disruption effect. And all of a sudden, you've got a mastic. you got man boobs. Yeah. So it's yeah. a big deal to me, without a doubt. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, Pedro, we're actually getting close to the end. I want to make sure that this IGTV gets saved. Um, so before we wrap up, man, do you want to just let people know how they can either work with you, um, go to your website, whatever you have, just let them know. Let them know here. Yeah. yeah, so I'm building a website. Once I have that out, I'll, I'll definitely um, give a link to where it can be found. You can just go on my Instagram, send a DM and contact me or whatever. You can send me an email, go to my link in, link in bio. I have my email link in there as well. And once again, my Instagram handle is Thucydides, T-H-U-C-Y-D-I-D-E-S with two underscores. And that's it. Wicked man. Well, thanks so much. Yeah. Look forward Thank to, uh, yeah. Thanks so much. We'll, um, we'll speak soon. Sounds good, man. Take care. Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want.